This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. The judge who was presiding over the Sudbury by-election trial uh, up in Sudbury, of course, uh, issued an acquittal for Pat Sabera and Jerry Lougheed yesterday, uh, basically saying that uh, Premier Wynne had uh, already made the decision to uh, pluck NDP MP um, Glenn Tebow, who is now Energy Minister from the NDP party, uh, into hers. And uh, because of that, then the other two cannot be charged by uh, whatever or for whatever they were doing with uh Andrew Olivier. Uh, that being said, as a result, uh, never went to trial. It was basically thrown out. Uh, what does that mean for the Liberal Party? What does it mean for the libel suit, uh, which, of course, Premier Wynne has launched against uh, Patrick Brown? To talk more about all of this, Duff Conacher is with us, board member with Democracy Watch in Ottawa, and is with us now. Duff, thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Tell everybody what Democracy Watch is. Democracy Watch is Canada's leading democratic reform, government accountability, and corporate responsibility advocacy group, and we are essentially pushing to make Canada the world's leading democracy. So, your thoughts on what happened in Sudbury yesterday? Well, I think that it was the wrong decision, because um, if you really want to prevent this stuff from happening, you interpret the law in the the broad way, um, and... It doesn't matter what the premier had done. They were were still trying to um, get this guy to not run as a candidate. And that meant not running for the nomination race. And that's what they did. They offered him rewards if he would not do that. Uh, political parties, uh, the rules on this seem to be all different. Uh, and many experts will say this goes on all the time. Uh, what's the difference between this case and the other scenarios? Um, the other scenarios, people haven't been charged, as they should have been. You know, the RCMP, police forces, Crown prosecutors have failed to enforce this law in the past. Um, Why the charge this time, do you think, Duff? I don't know. Um, uh, you'd have to ask the Crown prosecutors and, and the police who made that decision. Uh, the Liberals are saying that this whole thing, and their lawyers were saying that uh, this whole thing uh, uh, was all politically motivated and shouldn't have even got to where it was. Your thoughts? Um, I disagree. You know, it's very serious when uh, and these rules are there and put in place by politicians for a reason. And the reason is to ensure that you can't rig who ends up being an election candidate by trying to uh, stop someone through offering them re- rewards for uh, not um, running as a candidate. And it's something that has to be stopped. It's, it's a violation of voters' rights because they're not getting to choose who candidates are, and, and uh, either because the premier is intervening and anointing somebody. Isn't that, up to, the, isn't, isn't that the, up to the individual political party, though, in their own constitution? No, it's not, because the, I mean, it is in terms of choosing, but that's a bad idea as well, um, because the local voters should be choosing the candidates for each party, not party headquarters. That means you end up people who uh, getting people in office who serve the party leader as opposed to serving the voters in their riding and are beholden and, and owe the party leader because they handed them the job. Um, and, but also, the Elections Act says... Uh, to the same goal, that you have to let people run, and you can't let people bribe them 
or induce them in any way to not run in order to have a party leader get their favorite candidate in place. So it's, um, I, I think that it should have been interpreted that way. They did offer uh, him rewards if he didn't run challenge the and, and challenge the nomination of the person that the premier wanted as a candidate and doesn't matter what so she doesn't have you don't she doesn't have the right to decide who she wants to run or she has any that right, say. But she doesn't have no she doesn't have the right to decide who runs for the nomination she what? has the right to decide who who is the candidate in right. the end but right. they right. tried to prevent him trying to trying to become a candidate and that's what the law prohibits right so i think it was the wrong decision uh, do you agree that this happens all the time in political parties at various... Uh, it does, and yeah. and there's just been negligence on the part of police and Crown prosecutors in the past from uh, filing the charges that, that should have been filed. Is it because it's usually too hard to prove? Um, no, I mean, no, there have been clear cases uh, in, in the past where charges haven't been filed. Uh, the fact and there's also been cases of... of um, offering rewards to sitting MPs for them to do something. For example, Paul Martin, it was public. It was right, It was written in McLean's by uh, former uh, Ontario Premier uh, David Peterson. He said, I was the go-between between Belinda Stronach and Paul Martin. And she was telling him, I won't switch over from the Conservatives to become a Liberal unless you make me a minister. Mm-hmm. Well, that's offering a reward to switch, to yeah. do something as an MP. Yeah. And that was that was all admitted. But at the end of the day, Duff, to think that none of this goes on with a nudge, nudge, and a wink, wink, and not plainly obvious as it is in this case, or perhaps the one that you're talking about. I mean, how, how can wouldn't you be naive to think that this does not go on all the time and is pretty impossible to prove? It is this time because uh, right, Andrew Olivier has literally recorded every every conversation he had with them uh, because of his disability. Yes. So I, I think that's what's really different in this case. Would you agree? Yes, I agree. But um, there's ways of stopping it, certainly in terms of MPs doing what they do um, uh, and switching parties and things like that, is to have a rule that if you if you switch parties, unless you can prove that something like the party that you're in had broken all of its promises or the leader's been convicted of a crime and is refusing to leave, you know, some kind of serious thing like that, where they have a reason to leave your party, and if you can't prove that, then you would have to resign and run in a by-election if you're going to switch parties. So that's one thing that can solve that particular problem. And then if you change the system to ensure that riding associations are choosing candidates, um, and then you'll have a much more open system because you won't have uh, the party leader stepping in and uh, thwarting people from uh, running and having a democratic and fair nomination race. This is all undemocratic and unethical. So why politicians think it's okay and why the liberals would say it's okay based on having one judge say it's okay, Hmm. you know, there's a huge gap in every provincial capital between what's legal and what's ethical in the public's eye. And this is clearly unethical. And Okay, one judge thinks it's not illegal, but I'm sorry, I've, I've watched this stuff for 25 years, I've looked at the law, and... My opinion is it, it was illegal, and the judge made the wrong decision, and I hope the prosecutors will appeal. That's my next question to you. Do you think they will? Will this go any further? Do you think they're, I mean, considering it hasn't even been heard, I mean, it was it was thrown out. How, how does that change things? Yeah, that's part of why it should be 
uh, appealed. Because the well, let me ask you this question, Duff. Because they didn't even go into the trial before, because it was thrown out before it even got there. Does that? How does that play in favor of an appeal? Does that work towards that? Towards that goal or against it? It should. I mean, there was there was testimony. So just to make that clear, right? Uh, they just didn't complete it all, and uh, they hadn't made the final legal arguments, um, which are important. You know, you're, when you're in testimony, you're talking about the facts. And uh, this whole decision was based on where the, what line the, the law draws, not so much on the facts, but also what line the law draws. And I just don't think uh, that the judge should have made this premature decision. And also, I think it was the wrong decision. If you really are concerned about integrity in politics, you don't interpret the law in this way. Where does this leave the Liberal Party? Are they vindicated? No, again, because one judge has said that he thinks there wasn't enough there. But that is just one judge saying, and, and there, there aren't, it's not like there are a hundred past cases where that judge can say, oh yeah, we've looked at this kind of situation a hundred times, it's been in the courts, and the courts have always said this is the line. Right? These are very, very rare cases. And um, the... Uh, and, and so that's why I think they should appeal. But also, I think that in the public's eye, they can easily look at this, as I do, and say, that's not what the line is. The line is intended to stop this stuff totally, and it, and they did it. They offered a reward so a guy wouldn't run and make it a difficult situation in terms of attracting a federal NDP MP to be the premier's anointed candidate. That's what the law is intended to stop. It seems uh, in in popular politics lately that line is becoming even more blurred uh, of what is truth and what is fact fiction, that sort of thing. How do you think the public is going to view this? I think they will view it as something that happened that was unethical, clearly. And that's a hit against the liberals that they deserve because it was unethical, clearly. Uh, do you think the fact that there seems to be a, a few of these sort of situations in a row, whether it's a gas plant scandal or what have you, how is this viewed by the pub, uh, public, especially uh, the, the big concern was having the premier uh, testify in this uh, vindication there as well, uh, because it's not often that a sitting premier has to testify for something. Is uh, is this vindication for her as well? Um, well, I... I think the Premier should have testified. It would have looked worse if she tried to hide behind parliamentary privilege um, because the privilege shouldn't even extend to this kind of situation. Uh, It's just an old British tradition, and and it's wrong in some ways. Um, I don't think, again, it's it's vindication. Uh, You know, yeah, it would be worse if... if, uh, Two uh, liberals have been found guilty of, of violating the law, but I think a lot of people still view it as unethical. And the big question is how much they take that into account in the next election in terms of how they vote. And that, what I've seen the last 25 years, very much depends on whether the opposition parties are just complaining or whether they actually set out a strong platform for cleaning things up and closing any kind of loopholes that are perceived or are clear. Uh, if they just complain, then people, I th- think, quite rightly assume uh, they're just complaining, but they're not going to do anything different. If they actually set out in a strong platform, we're going to clean all of this up and take it seriously. Every party that's done that 
in the last uh, 25 years across Canada has either won the election or won more seats. So um, that's what will switch voters. Complaining, you know, all the polls show only 10% of that have been taken the last five years show that only 10% of Canadians trust politicians anyway. So if you're just complaining about another politician, that's not necessarily raising your your uh, the, the public's view of you and what you would do if you were in office, especially when all the parties have these problems with nomination races. Uh, the progressive conservatives right now have multiple problems, including lawsuits. So uh, just just saying liberals did bad, but saying nothing about what you would do that's good is not going to get a, a party much of anywhere, I don't think, in the next election. Whose responsibility is it to clean this up? Politicians write all these rules for themselves, and uh, that's why it's so disappointing to see a judge look at one of the strong rules we have and say, oh, no, no, I'm just going to treat it like a loophole, um, as opposed to treating it seriously and really thinking about what it's intended to prevent and why. Do you think because the judge is aware this happens behind closed doors all the time that that's why he let the, he, he judged the way he did on this? Possibly. I don't know. He had an opportunity to set a different direction in terms of law enforcement by drawing a line that says this covers any kind of inducement related to discouraging someone from trying to become an election candidate, which is what it says. And, and uh, unfortunately, like Crown prosecutors and the police in past cases, many of them that I've seen over the last 25 years, the judge has rolled over and said, "No, the line doesn't. Co- the law doesn't cover this." So I just think again, wrong decision. Appeal it, and hopefully the court of appeal takes this more seriously. Uh, prosecutors wouldn't bring something to the trial if they didn't think that it would fly, would they? I mean, there's lots of chatter that this is politically motivated. Um, well, given that the law has really had so few cases in the past of anything to do with this. Um, Even bribery cases are very few and far between. Uh, I think in every case of these situations, the prosecutor should say, we really don't know what the courts will do because we can't look back at 100 decisions and see a clear line. Hmm. So prosecute and let the courts decide. Prosecutors don't have to explain their decisions. And courts do. So that's why this should go to court and uh, always and should have in the past with all these past cases uh, if it had we the judge would have had some other cases to refer to and um, that's why no one should assume that this was politically motivated it was the proper thing to do because the lines that the law draws were not known clearly, and that's what, and that's when a court should decide, not a prosecutor. Well, when uh, it's the prosecutor that decides decides to lay a charge, not the political party, how is it politically motivated? Well, also, and and the prosecutor works in the uh, division of the provincial attorney general, uh, which is the liberals currently. So and was when I understand this was I understand this was sometimes people say oh well the new minister is directing people to prosecute certain people and that minister is from a different political party and therefore it's politically motivated but all of the people in charge of the ministry and at the very top in charge of uh, of um, 
uh, prosecutors in this case were, were liberals, and it was liberals who were charged. So I don't see political motivation being uh, at play there at all. Uh, I got. Uh, I received a note uh, earlier today from uh, the press secretary of uh, the Ontario, uh, Ernie, uh, Ontario, Ontario Attorney General, and they said that this was prosecuted uh, by the Public Prosecution Service of Canada. Uh, the case was not prosecuted by the Ontario Crown Attorneys. Oh, well, I mean, even then, you're talking about uh, uh, the ruling party being the Liberals. Mm. So point remains the same to you. Yes. Uh, what about the libel scenario, the suit between uh, Premier Wynne and Patrick Brown, him stating things about her being on trial and such by, because, of course, she had to uh, testify or decided to testify uh, uh, on her own in this case. Uh, where does this leave that suit? That suit, I think, will go ahead. Um, it's not the way things should be done. There should be an honesty in politics law system uh, in every jurisdiction in Canada. And um, the, uh, the, that law should work with complaints going to the integrity commissioner and uh, the integrity commissioner being able to uh, put um, very high uh, fines in place uh, and as a penalty for making a dishonest statement. Also breaking an election promise um, and making any statement, whether it's in the legislature or not, that whole parliamentary privilege of being able to libel someone within the legislature should be removed. So do you think he is liable? I think he did libel her, yes. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, uh, but it's a better system that uh, would prevent this all, this whole back and forth within libel law, I think, in, with politics and politicians. If there was more clarity. It should be yeah. set out in an honesty in politics law, because he could have said that in the legislature, and then he's protected by this thing called parliamentary privilege right. from anyone suing him. Mm-hmm. And he shouldn't be allowed to say something like that in the legislature either. That's why people don't watch. You know, you're listening to yeah. spin and counterspin. It's fiction. It's not the truth. They're not dealing with real problems in real ways. And if you're going to watch fictional politics... Well, the people are better looking. The plots are better on TV. Yeah. That's why people watch <laughs> Netflix. TV is, and Netflix TV has something like better for you. Cards much yeah. more than they watch provincial politics. Yeah. And honesty in politics law would clean that all up and make it worth watching again. Uh, does this verdict add more weight to Kathleen's charge against Patrick Brown? Um, well, yes and no. I mean it in terms of the overall atmosphere around it. But again, it's just one judge saying, I don't think the line was crossed here. Um, he made a far greater mistake, Patrick Brown did, in saying that the premier was on trial. Mm-hmm. And, of course, he's going to try and claim that I was saying her reputation was on trial, but you can't leave out the word reputation <laughs> when you say something like the premier's on trial. Mm-hmm. That means you're saying the premier's on trial. She wasn't on trial. Her reputation, the reputation of her party more, more specifically was on trial, uh, and her reputation because it was her chief of staff involved in this, but she was not on trial. And so that's why he has a big problem, I think. Um, and the premier was right to complain um, because it's all you have to ensure honesty in politics now is to file a libel lawsuit, but it would be much better if these complaints were not in the courts but instead, we're going to the integrity commissioner, and we're covering statements made in the legislature, and also covering election promises, and covering every government official uh, 
saying anything dishonest, not just something that slanders someone else, but saying anything that's dishonest. As fact. Duff, let me yeah. ask you this question. You've, we've certainly seen the rise of the populist movement, and we, you know, we know what's happening in the United States with, uh, with Trump and such. Uh, will this pendulum swing back, or will we end up with more Trump-like leadership? Or will, you, you know, I, I was noticing CNN is running a new commercial, uh, a new spot, you know, talking about uh, the facts of the facts. They actually use an apple. This is an apple, not a banana. Uh, there aren't two sets of facts. There's one set of facts. That's the truth. Will this pendulum swing back? Only with an honesty in politics law. Politicians can get away with it. And... You know, for people to pretend that it's only Donald Trump that has lied blatantly to voters. I mean, we just have many cases in in Canada of the same things. Not quite as frequently, but very important misleading statements made. You know, for example, the federal conservative said we kept all our promises to clean up politics back in 2006. And they said it again and again. It was a big lie. They, had, they promised 60 changes. They only made 30, and they also added eight new loopholes or, or gutted laws in, in a total of eight new ways uh, that reduced accountability, including there used to be an old rule in the Conflict of Interest Code for federal cabinet ministers that said they were required to be honest. And the conservatives said, we're going to take that old code, including that rule of honesty, put it into a new law, and make it much more enforceable by an independent watchdog. They took the old code, put it in the new law, took out the, the rule on honesty, hmm. because they didn't want to be held accountable for lying to voters. So, you know, they lied about removing a rule that prevents you from lying, and about other things, too, in that whole package. They only kept half their promises. There Def- should have been an honesty in politics law in place at the time, with, and if that rule had been left in the code, uh, then I would have filed complaints about them lying, and they would have been found guilty. That's how you stop this. Duff Conacher has been with us, board member with Democracy Watch in Ottawa. His response, of course, to the Sudbury by-election trial being thrown out. Duff, thanks for the time and insight, as always. Much appreciated. Thank you very much, and people can see much more at democracywatch.ca. That's democracywatch.ca. Thank you, Duff. Thank you. Take care. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Who's spying on who? It seems to be everybody. Uh, The presidential campaign for Hillary Clinton and the uh, DNC helped fund a political research firm that produced the dossier, or a dossier of allegations about Trump's ties to Russia. Uh, the Associated Press says that uh, this dossier of allegations about President Trump does go into investigation into his business ties uh, in Russia, of course, which has been uh, lots of chatter. There's been lots of chatter on this lately. Uh, Ryan Hurl is with us, Assistant Professor, Department of Political Science, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Ryan, thank you very much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Oh, no problem at all. Uh, it seems everybody is spying on everyone. Should we be surprised here? Uh, it's a little bit surprising given that, uh, at least in this particular instance, given that the Clinton campaign had denied, uh, connections regarding this particular report and the dossier, uh, from a broader perspective, it's not particularly surprising at all. It had been known for a very long time that it was actually one of, uh, 
Trump's uh, Republican Party opponents during the primary season who had initiated some of this initial research. And it had been known or at least speculated that Democrats had, uh, or Democrat supporters had continued funding the research afterwards. Uh, so in that sense, uh, it's, uh, it's not surprising. But and then also, yes, opposition research takes place. And it's it, the, the, the problem here. Or what's interesting is that the public is getting a sense of just some of the skullduggery that goes on. Uh, that's a very valid point. Are, are they sort of caught in each other's web here? We perhaps don't have the full story yet. Um, and I, I, at some point, I think the public, if you try to differentiate between like potential or speculated uh, Trump collusion with the Russians and attempting to get information about Clinton, it might seem to the public as if it's hair splitting, given that the Clinton campaign was paying a firm to use a British intelligence agent who was probably working with the Russians and in, in the, the firm itself had connections to the Kremlin in order to get additional opposition research. It might be possible for somebody to explain how these two situations are different. But as of now, I think the general public who might only be paying attention to this sort of with one eye on the ball might just might just come to the conclusion that everyone's involved in this semi espionage game. Uh, and of course, once the the tweets start, the confusion ensues. Yep. So, what is Trump doing that Hillary isn't? Uh, that's an that's an interesting question. Uh, at this point, I almost feel as if I need to have a a giant billboard in my room, like a conspiracy theorist trying to connect all the different plots and all the different mm. lines. Uh, I, I think that. Thus far, we do not yet have any clear narrative about what ha- what kind of collusion was going on between Trump and uh, the Russians, if at all. Uh, the phrase that emerged uh, regarding, say, the meeting between Donald Trump Jr. and uh, some individuals was that there was pr- uh, preparedness to conclude or something along uh, collude or something along those lines. Uh, we're still very much in the dark. I mean, that's why there's a, an investigation going on. Uh, so I would say that we still, I think we still don't know the full extent of what, of what has happened. But what is now becoming more apparent is that the, the elements of Russian influence might have crossed partisan lines. Hmm. Does this give Trump credibility? Uh, how does this affect the Russian investigation or certainly his spin on that? We don't know where the Russian investigation is going to go. I mean, there are other balls in the air, as it were. There are other elements to this story. There's been uh, a, a slew of stories have emerged in the last week, a story that I've been familiar with about um, claims that uh, the Russian government and its affiliates had been trying to influence uh, Secretary of State Clinton, when she was Secretary of State, and the Obama administration regarding the acquisition of Uranium One. Uh, is, that going to be, uh, is, is that going to be part of this game as well? I think what is what is happening is that the you, you'll see increasingly Republicans in Congress wanting to shift attention uh, to potential interactions between uh, Clinton and the Russian government, all parts of the the attempted Russian reset during the Obama administration. I frankly, I'm not sure if you'll ever reach a point where you'll find evidence of a smoking gun that is clearly criminal activity. Uh, you know, Clinton was a secretary of state and had complicated political and financial dealings with individuals around the world. Trump is a business person with a very, very complicated life uh, and also a political amateur. Like, it would not be surprising if uh, they, in, in trying to obtain information about the Clintons, uh, they overstepped some lines. But it's one thing to say that people were involved with some unsavory figures 
when they're doing opposition research and saying that they either clearly violated the law or that the president should be impeached. It's difficult to prosecute a person for any crime, and it should be. And you're, this is a situation where the evidence is not, is not likely to be clear. Do we know the contents or what this information is about? Uh, any, any revelation there? Do, what did they find? Uh, in terms of the the information, the DNC, that was, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, the information that was paid for by the DNC, I don't think I don't think there's any new information that has been uh, that has come out in terms of the content. I mean, if people want to Google the salacious uh, the salacious details of it, it's it's nothing new than what people were hearing about last uh, you know last December December 2016. So, how do both camps spin this information? Uh... I think that clearly the Trump administration is is going to want to say it's, it's going to try try to push this in the direction of the much more serious scandal regard, uh, or potential scandal uh, regarding uranium one because that also implicates uh, the Obama administration. Uh, if the claims about that scandal bear any element of truth, um, it's much more serious than anything that's been speculated about this thus far about the Trump administration. Uh, in case of the Trump administration or the Trump campaign, rather, the claims are that they may have worked with the Russian government in some ways to influence the election, but really to get information. Uh, if the claims about the uranium scandal are true, and I just want to say this is, I'm not making any claims about the truth, but if those claims are true, the amount of money involved is much greater, and the, the amount, the potential, the, the, the seriousness of the offense. Uh, the seriousness of the collusion between the Obama administration and uh, the Russian government. Collusion might not be the right word. It's more the case that uh, insufficient due diligence on the Obama administration's uh, front. I think that is a story that is a little bit more straightforward, large amounts of money involved. Uh, I think the Trump administration might want to push, and Republicans as well, might want to push discussion in that way. I think the uh, the Clinton and the Democratic camp We'll say that this is mostly information that we already knew, and that's not exactly correct. But you know, I was not I was not entirely surprised to find that uh, the the DNC was involved in this. I had in my mind, I think, known that the the information in the Steele dossier had been paid for not only by Republicans and and by the Democrats, and it's also not clear that anything Ill, quite illegal has gone on here. Um, so I think that that's possibly, uh, I think that's possibly the direction they'd like the story or the conversation to go. Will we see another crooked Hillary tweet? Oh yeah, <laughs> that's a, that's a pretty that's a pretty that's a pretty safe bet. I'm I think the uh, I think the the, the the twittering finger will be will be quite ready to type out that message. Uh, let's talk about what happened yesterday and uh, uh, two senators on their way out announcing Republican senators senators announcing that they will not run. Uh, in the next election and on the way out, swimming or swinging in in, in such at uh, Trump, uh, Jeff Flake, the, the the latest to say uh, to mm-hmm. do so. H- how do you interpret his comments? How does that resonate with with Americans? Um, that's difficult to say. I mean, it's really not about how it's going to resonate with Americans, but how it's going to resonate with the Republican Party voters, because this is just very much about the deep divisions that exist within the Republican Party, divisions that were to some degree on display um, as early as the uh, the Tea Party uh, revolts of a few years back. Um, so I think that that is just that uh, that struggle that's playing out in the in the public eye. It does seem to me that it is a sign 
that at least some Republicans feel that the the old main, the mainstream party, call it the neoconservative wing of the party, uh, the anti-Trump wing of the party, uh, feels at a disadvantage. That uh, they might feel as if the populist, the energy lies with the populist wing of the party. And there are some signs that uh, Senator Flake would not have been able, or at least would have faced a serious challenge in his primary election. Uh, so I think that this is it's not surprising that the Republican Party uh, is having difficulty maintaining unity uh, after the Trump takeover. This is utterly unsurprising. Um, it's not surprising that you have members of the Republican Party turning against Trump at this point. Uh, it's not unprecedented in American politics. One thing that's easy for Canadians to forget is that American political parties really just are not like Canadian political parties. It's impossible, almost, it's all been almost always impossible to maintain party discipline. They don't act as a unified team. They act on the basis of their own individual interests. It's just an inherent part of the system. Uh, it, it's not something that can be readily changed, and it's not something that's it's not something that's surprising either. We were all sort of surprised and stunned, concerned, pick your word, uh, after the inauguration, and lots thought that that Trump would be more presidential than what he ha- what he has been. And of course, it just seems to be going south the farther into the the term that he goes. Um, he, he, the art of the deal, he creates confusion. He tries to get people off balance. He has people in his company that are supposed to work side by side with each other that he creates enemies mm-hmm. and adversity and such. Um, and out of all of that, Trump constantly preached fake news. Everybody who doesn't hold his thought is fake, fake, right. fake, fake, fake. And as a result of that, we saw the populist movement and, and portions of America start to question uh, the fakeness and the, and the truthful, truthfulness of it all. That right. being said, is that pendulum swinging back? Is something shifting here? Because now it's getting to the point where people, I'm hearing more and more, especially in the Republican Party, stand up and say, this man is simply lying. He's simply not telling people the truth. Is the pendulum right. swinging back? Is this shifting? Um, I think it's possible. And I think, uh, I think what's important to remember that, from my perspective, uh, Trump's personality has always been a liability more than an advantage. I think that his success, I might be in the minority on this. I mean, there were people, there are people who would say there was something about his brash style, something about his uh, celebrity background. That but gave that him being a said, advantage. he creates yeah. his own problems. He creates yes, his own. Ex- yeah, exactly. That's it. He's create. So he's, cre- I mean, I think his personality creates these problems for himself. I mean, I think the deeper, but that's not necessarily going to eliminate uh, the divisions within the Republican Party. Um, I think that the only way for Trump to succeed at this point, I, I mean, at per, on a personal level, it doesn't seem like he's going to adjust. It, that that is his, for whether it's a conscious decision or simply the way he is, he is not going to be. He's not going to be sort of the cool, calm, collected public figure that President Obama was. But he's taking a gamble that the underlying policy positions are po- just popular enough to bring together this strange coalition of conservative Republicans and disaffected Democrats uh, to, be, to be a useful political strategy. So I don't know. if uh, I'm not sure that his actions have been so extreme post-inauguration that it would uh, cause him to be that concerned. I mean, he was acting in a similarly... A brash way during the election, and he's able to win the presidency. 
has anything happened since then on that on that sort of personal uh, element uh, level that would that would cause him additional concern? I'm not 100. percent I don't sure. know. That, this I, sort, this I, sort I, of reminds me of, of Brexit, Ryan, and like everybody thought right. it was a great idea before it happened. Then in the day, I was like, oh geez, what the heck did we do? So I, I don't know. I, I think people are second guessing this beyond his base. Uh, do you think right. the rest of the country is? Is learning, and again, he's create he creates confusion. He tries to get people off step. He he takes right. reputable media companies and tells them that they're fake and lying and, right, and right. all of this. And, and I'm convinced it's to cover his own fakeness, his own fake news. It, it, are people realizing that that he's whatever he is? He he's he's also a flim flam man, and 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 right. and he is what he's referring to as fake nor false news. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I guess my response to that would be is that um, for a lot of people, and even a lot of for a lot of Republicans, and certainly as supporters, they look beyond the the surface level BS. And I think everyone can admit there's a huge percentage of BS um, and a lot of this entertainment style politics. And instead, they look at things like acting on deregulation, acting on immigration reform. But is anything really getting on, done? Is it really? Is he really? Is he making progress there? Is it really getting done? Is the policy yes. getting done? Uh, uh, within the within what he can do as president, there's a lot that's occurring, and that's uh, been comforting to a lot of conservatives, Republicans. Whether this will be sufficient is hard to say. We have to remember that just as President Obama was able to do a lot independently as a president, there's a great deal of, of executive action that uh, President Trump can take, and he has done it. And he has on that level. That's why it's been reassuring to, I guess, his base. And even to members, even to many uh, individuals who, uh, within the Republican Party who were not uh, who were not Trump supporters, who are even in the anti-Trump camp. So the inability to work with Congress and the big failures thus far on Obamacare reform—that's uh, only—that's only part of the picture. I personally don't think it's great that the president alone, through control of the executive branch, has so much pow- power to change policy unilaterally. But he has been doing it, and he has been acting on those promises. So uh, what he's not doing is he's not softening that public image. And so I think ultimately, even if he's able to satisfy some of his policy commitments, and on some of them he is succeeding, um, it's not going to be enough. He's not going to be able to reach out uh, to uh, non-Republican voters. And frankly, he's going to he's going to have to do that uh, if he's if he's going to succeed in 2020, because the Democratic Party is going to be so incredibly energized. Uh, that's another question. Really, are they energized, Ryan? Because at this point, I thought they would have a plan B by now. And all they seem to be doing is getting caught up in the in 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 the marsh that is Donald Trump. Why aren't we seeing who the next great Democratic leader is? Why aren't we moving forward from this? Why aren't we forgetting about Hillary and Obama and just moving right. on to the future? Yeah, I mean, I think that the Democratic Party will have to answer some questions. And the perennial question for the Democratic Party is, do you move towards the center or is it time to move to a more Swedish-style social democratic party? And they have not quite resolved that question. And it's more, in some ways, it's more difficult than ever. I mean, the relative success of the Bernie Sanders campaign uh, shows that there is a uh, there's, there's a wing of the party, a significant wing of the party that isn't satisfied with centrism. So I think that is part of the that is part of the problem. That's part of the problem there, and I, it's it, it, you have to also remember the p- parties are not entities in the United States. At no point does, is it possible for the Democratic Party to simply say, "Okay, this is what our strategy is going to be." 
right? If, if it was possible for the Democratic Party to do that, there would not have been a Bernie Sanders insurgency during the mm. 2016 campaign. Uh, so, yeah, there's always these difficult strategic choices. I mean, I think part of it comes down to is that there are, the, the country is so divided, not just politically, but geographically and politically at the same time. There are parts of the country where to be a Democrat means, yes, you can be a very far left Bernie Sanders style Democrat. But that's not going to swing it in the, in, the, in the contested states, in the contested congressional districts. So it makes the strategic situation for them very difficult. And, yeah, and, and maybe people are still recovering from 2016. They're not quite ready yet to talk about the next, uh, the next stage. How will we look back at this presidency? Will it end differently than it began? Oh, that's such a difficult, that's such a difficult question to answer. Um, I will say this, the, uh, the, the liberal progressive blogger and the writer, uh, Matthew Iglesias of the Vox website in the States, he tweeted out, I think, about 200 what he thought of his unpopular opinions. And one of them was that he thought Trump was going to get elected in 2020. And this is, this is someone coming from left of center. And part of the reason that's sort of a safe bet is that it's difficult to beat an incumbent president. Uh, so I will go for the safe answer and say that if, you know, if economic growth is around 3%, if Trump avoids uh, an unnecessary or existentially threatening war, uh, it's possible for him to be, it's possible for him to be reelected and how he will be remembered will, will, will be difficult to say. I, frankly, I think given the long-term problems of the United States, I think he might well be remembered as yet another president who didn't address the, the long-term problems with funding the American welfare state and dealing with uh, their long-term deficits. Uh, but that's a slightly different conversation. Ryan Hurl has been with us, Assistant Professor, Department of Political Science, University of Toronto. Ryan, a fascinating discussion. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, no problem at all. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Yesterday, the fall economic update was announced by Finance Minister Bill Morneau. Everything's just hunky-dory. He called the update good news, saying that the hot economy has shrunk in the deficit and the government is forecasting smaller deficits and increases to programs uh, aimed at low- and middle-income families. I guess my first question is, uh, if things are so rosy, why are they continually in the news for taxing people? Uh, let's bring in Ted Mallett, Chief Economist, Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and with us now. Hello, Ted. Thanks for taking the call, and thanks for uh, being on the air with us today. Good. Good afternoon. It's a pleasure. Tell everybody what the Canadian Federation of Independent Business is. We are a lobby group representing solely individual owner-operators of, of businesses in Canada. We have 109,000 businesses in, in all walks of life, all regions of the country, and uh, we don't accept any money from government, uh, unlike a lot of other associations. Uh, but we're we're there to represent the interests uh, of small business owners, and uh, we had a very busy summer. Here's what Finance Minister Bill Morneau had to say yesterday. Uh, we know that continuing to make those those investments will allow us to continue to be successful in terms of growth rates, and we've we've fully factored in the uh, the costs and the challenges. So uh, your thoughts, Ted, uh, is it all sunny ways again? Are we good to go? Uh, Canada has one of the best economies or the best economy in the G7 right now. Your thoughts? Well, right now actually is, uh, is not quite right. We're dealing with uh, very strong growth in the first and second quarters of, of this year. 
uh, but we're fully expecting the third and fourth quarters to be significantly weaker. Uh, uh, much of that was simply the uh, the rebound effect. Uh, the, the growth uh, earlier on was kind of just the recovery from the uh, the earlier resource crunch that we had uh, over the past couple of years. We're now settling into something more sustainable, but uh, we had some roadblocks. I mean, certainly the, the tax proposals that the government made back in July uh, were having some serious effects on the uh, the business perspectives of business owners. Uh, and other policy issues like uh, the massive changes to minimum wage policy that we're seeing in, in Ontario, Alberta, and British Columbia are, were weighing on businesses as well in how they would have to react to those uh, big changes in their costs. So uh, it's, it's not all uh, uh, fair, fair weather sailing at this point. There's still some uh, distractions and, and difficulties for businesses uh, to go out there. How do those tax change? Uh, how do those uh, tax changes fly now that the economy is perceived to be good? I mean, well, I, uh, you know, taxes to small business and such. It seems that the government is into our pockets more. Do they need to be into our pockets more if they're if we're doing well? Well, now that we've uh, we've the government has now said that they are going to be reducing the small business tax rate from ten and a half percent to nine percent over the next uh, year and a half. So that's. Uh, uh, that, that, that's good policy. We're, we're, we're pleased to see that uh, uh, take place. Um, I think it would have been rather odd for the government to be claiming, uh, as they originally had back in July, that they were suffering a real revenue drought because of uh, improper taxation uh, laws, when in fact the latest results from yesterday show that revenues were running $6 billion higher than they expected six, just six months ago. Uh, so, so they would have had uh, more of an uphill climb to claim that they were uh, really trying to fix the tax system that was actually performing quite well uh, in terms of, of pulling money in for government uh, when, when the economy is doing well. So how hot is the Canadian economy? I mean, how, and are every, everyday Canadians feeling this? The economy uh, did quite well for a couple of quarters earlier in the year, but we think that uh, the, the growth rates have probably come down uh, a fair bit to more or less sustainable rates. And uh, sustainable rates in sort of standard economic uh, parlance is, is uh, really uh, 1.5% to 2% growth, uh, not including inflation. Uh, we were well above that in the early part of the year, but we're going to be back to those levels uh, 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 the later part of this year, and perhaps a little bit below that uh, in the uh, in the early part of uh, 2018. So, uh, so that is sustainable, but it, it's not gangbusters by any stretch. What? What affects this? Uh, housing prices, how does that factor into this? Um, the energy sector, uh, why is Canada doing so well? Well, the energy sector uh, had taken a big hit back in the end of 2014 when prices started to plunge. Uh, they've now come back and they've stabilized. Uh, uh, the, the most important thing for businesses is, is uh, being able to count on uh, their input costs and their, their uh, demand factors to be more or less stable over the next couple of years. And we've seen oil prices more or less in the $50 uh, a barrel range for the past uh, year or so. So there's confidence that that's pretty much where it's going to stay. So businesses can actually plan based on that expectation. And that's probably helped a, a fair bit. Uh, so it's, it's not nearly what we uh, had seen back in the 2013-2014, uh, you know, uh, where prices were, were clearly over uh, overvalued. But uh, uh, when the rest of the economy has some stability in terms of uh, knowing what uh, energy prices are going to, at least oil prices are going to be, uh, then they, they can uh, plan accordingly. But, you know, as 
oil prices are only one part of the economy. Uh, it certainly affects uh, Alberta more than uh, Ontario, but the challenges in the rest of the country are, are significant. Uh, we've got uh, very high electricity costs in, in this province. Uh, businesses have to pay quite a bit for uh, being able to uh, uh, use electricity for production processes uh, and so on, which which is higher cost than many uh, neighboring U.S. states and uh, and Quebec as well. So you know those those are problems as well as the uncertainty around uh, what it's going to be what it's going to entail for wage level costs uh, over the next couple of uh, months because uh, we're seeing a substantial rise in in minimum wages uh, in Ontario next month. How does this uh, this news affect the health of Ontario businesses specifically? Um, as you mentioned, still some concerns. Um, are people in Ontario going to buy into this as much as say other provinces? Well, I think if, uh, if 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 the general public uh, uh, feels that uh, things are more, and of course, there's there's always people at the uh, uh, very optimistic side and others on the very pessimistic side. Nobody's ever treated, uh, you know, on average. There's there's a fair degree of of uh, dispersion amongst the uh, uh, the highs and lows of uh, individuals within the province. But on average, if uh, if there is stability in home prices, uh, and you know, not Going up too fast, not uh, not sinking too fast. Uh, that's that's important. If if the inflation rate is is uh, known to be likely to be in the one to two percent range, is where the Bank of Canada wants to keep things. Uh, and if there is reasonable uh, assurance that uh, people's jobs will be uh, uh, held, or they've got the same number of hours that they uh, they've always expected. Then we can expect to see uh, the consumer to do really reasonably well, and if the consumer feels they're going to be reasonably uh, do reasonably well, then uh, the business sector can uh, respond as well. Does this have anything to do with uh, politics, Ted, or is this just the way the economy is flowing and the rest of the world and it, it all coming together? How much of this is politically uh, motivated? Is responsible due to politics? Uh, politics plays less of a role than than perhaps many people think. Uh, uh, most businesses, when they're they're asked about their uh, their business outlook, uh, will really focus on, well, how many uh, cold calls did I get today? Today, how many customers walked in the door? Uh, how many email orders did I uh, did I receive? And that that by far outweighs any kind of feeling about what kind of government, what stripe of government uh, is is in office right now. Uh, certainly, policies can make a difference, and and uh, you know, badly uh, designed policies can certainly affect business outlook out there. But not every policy is designed badly, and uh, we certainly, uh, our role uh, is to ensure that uh, policies are designed properly uh, as they affect small business owners. So uh, generally, politics is, is a factor, but it's, it's not really a dominant one. Uh, as you mentioned, a good quarter initially, and then uh, predicting uh, some weakness as we move forward and more slow, steady growth, which I'm sure is positive. How does that affect interest rates? Uh, of course, uh, the Bank of Canada announcing uh, that they're going to remain the same right now. But uh, what about increases? People are always concerned about that. Well, we are going to see increases, so it's never been a question of if rates are going to increase, but it's a matter of when and how fast. Yeah. And how much? Well, how much? Uh, I think we can pretty well be assured that they're going to go back up to the uh, 4 or 5% range, uh, which is what uh, uh, typical, small, uh, typical short-term interest rates are in a 2% inflation environment. So um, you know, that's where they're likely going to be over the long run. But uh, so far, most economists have been wrong of uh, when 
you know, when those kind of rates would be uh, brought into uh, brought into play, because uh, um, they they need to be at that level to kind of balance the the needs of the investors. Uh, the, the savers in the economy, the people saving for their pensions and, and so on, as well as balancing the needs of the people who want to invest and borrow. Uh, we've, we've all seen the problems uh, brought in into the housing markets when you have very low rates for, for a long period of time. Uh, we've now got imbalance in, the, uh, in, in, in property markets in most uh, urban parts of, of the country, and we're going to have to back away from that, uh, but hopefully slowly, uh, if we do it all at once, then uh, that can be a big problem for consumer demand. How much is, uh, when you're talking about interest rates in, in the Bank of Canada, you were talking about how 4% is that sweet spot. Uh, how does the Bank or does the bank of Canada consider take into consideration the fact that what the debt ratio is for most, most families, and if it's too much of an increase, then uh, we'll be in serious problems? They will... They will say that they don't take that into account because uh, their their focus is on making sure that they've got a uh, a stable pricing uh, environment out there. They they plan on they hope for uh, a two percent inflation rate, which is enough to give some uh, uh, steady uh, ideas of of where prices are going uh, without the risk of deflation, which is actually a bigger, much bigger problem than inflation. Uh, so you don't want to have a zero rate of uh, planned rate of growth. Uh, of prices, uh, so two percent is is where it needs to be, and and uh, we're we're getting close to that level now. Uh, so I think once we're there, and if there's a fear that it may go higher than two percent, that's when rates are going to start uh, rising in the net, probably in the new year. So smaller deficit, good news from the government yesterday. That equals more goodies for Canadians. Is that um, is that what should happen, or should we pay down deficits? Well, no, I think we need to pay down debt. Uh, the go- government has had three straight years of spending growth that's been more than six percent uh, per year, and even though they're saying that deficits are lower than their target uh, uh, six months ago, uh, that's assuming that they can hold spending to less than the growth in the economy. And uh, governments traditionally have problems doing that, uh, typically. And if you look even further out, and the government doesn't forecast as far out, but uh, we're not going to see the budget balance itself. Uh, if if the government spends simply based on how the economy is growing and taxes come in according to its, you know, their traditional share and economic output, then actually we're going to start seeing a rise in the deficits uh, later in the 2020 uh, decade. So uh, that's still a problem. The government still has to make some adjustments uh, probably to their spending. Uh, more than anything, if they want to achieve balanced budgets over the next five or six years. Um, we've heard lots of chatter about energy and pipelines, um, probably more so in the past than now, it seems. Uh, the the Prime Minister was uh, very open uh, right from his election that we have to get our resources to market. Uh, what about the pipeline discussion and the fact that uh, they don't, although being approved, they don't seem to be actually getting to the point of construction and delivery? Uh, how does this change the forecast for Canadians or for Canada when it comes to uh, managing and, and getting what we can for our resources? Uh, those kind of bets are very high stakes. Uh, there's, there's a big gamble in, in pouring a lot of money into uh, an energy infrastructure uh, to getting to market. So if uh, if oil prices uh, returned to $100 a barrel, uh, then not building these pipelines would have been a big mistake. However, if if oil prices, uh, for reasons of, of uh, 
uh, technology change and, and uh, conservation and the fact that uh, the U.S. is, is able to pull uh, oil out of shale formation very easily. Uh, if oil prices go down to $40 a barrel, then high spending on this kind of inf- uh, pipeline infrastructure would have been a very bad idea. So uh, it, it, it's a matter of trying to make the best bet uh, right down the middle because the risks, there are big risks on either side of that equation. Where do you think that is going to go, that discussion? It seemed to be moving quite rapidly, then it has seemed, now it has seemed to come to a stall. Uh, I think the, the real concern was that does Canada need all that many pipelines to be able to get uh, oil to market? Uh, probably the answer is no under the you know, current situations. Uh, if if uh, we can get uh, more oil into uh, the Keystone uh, pipeline when it's uh, more fully developed in the U.S., uh, that would be good. Uh, and uh, whether it's important, uh, whether the Trans uh, Mountain would be uh, sufficient is, is uh, hard to say at this point, but it didn't look like Energy East was actually going to provide uh, that much of a benefit, so that's why it was uh, was postponed. We may we may see that proposal uh, reemerge in the next uh, uh, years or decades, uh, but at this point it didn't look like that, that project was necessary. Uh, this economic statement, is this enough to draw attention away from the taxation conversation that the, that the Liberals and the public have been involved in, and specifically uh, Morneau and how he can, uh, conducts his own personal finances? Is all of this enough good news to draw attention away from uh, the negative Liberal publicity prior to this announcement? Well, I, I, I think uh, the government had already backed away from their proposals on small business taxation uh, quite significantly, uh, partly because they, they would have seen these financial numbers uh, earlier than, than anyone, any one of us uh, on that uh, sort of thing. And so that's why we also saw a reduction in the small business tax rate. So uh, those are positive measures, and uh, you know we're kind of back to a, uh, hopefully back to a, a bit of a, a normal trend watch on on uh, federal finances. Uh, deficits are relatively uh, low in terms of the size of the economy. So $19, uh, $20 billion uh, is, is much lower than we've seen before. Uh, but, you know, we still think it's important for governments to be focusing on getting back to balance because it's a it's proper demonstration of good economics and good policymaking. Uh, less than a minute left. NAFTA talks, uh, obviously very precarious right now. Could that throw a stick into all of this? Um, it it could, but uh, we're thinking that the uh, uh, the NAF- Canada will not agree to a bad deal uh, out there. That many businesses probably uh, would be better off uh, paying duties uh, to the U.S. if forced to do so. Those duties, uh, in most cases, are relatively modest. Uh, there's also the fallback. Uh, people do talk about the fact that the the original free t- trade agreement with the U.S. is what we'd fall back to automatically. Uh, and if the U.S. didn't even want to do that, they'd have to go through a separate process to, to rescind that, uh, that agreement. So uh, there's still a fair degree of complexity, and, and certainly the uncertainty is not, uh, is not a good thing. Uh, but generally, the downside is not going to be catastrophic for Canada either way. Ted Malik has been with us. Ted Mallet, he's the Chief Economist, Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Ted, thanks for the conversation uh, and the insight. Much appreciated. It's appreciated. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.